When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. Today's guest, because this is another interview, is Corey Clark, who is a blonde, non-British, unbiased bombshell. We speak about bias. She's a social psychologist, right? So she studies free will and our conceptions of free will and whether or not we pretend to believe in free will and under what conditions we believe in free will. We also talk about bias because she's really interested in how bias informs our actions and how we can't really escape bias. So this is mostly psychology and stuff like that. She has a lot of data. She's actually a experimental philosopher as well as a social psychologist and an experimental philosopher is like a philosopher who doesn't just sit there and try to come up with new ideas but actually looks at experiments and grounds their ideas in data sets and stuff like that uh, this is a great conversation we laugh a whole lot because we have a great rapport report rapport um, never know what to do with that tea here's Corey Clark <laughs> So you've been running a podcast, apparently. Sorry, you've been running a podcast. We 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 made an overture to a podcast war, me you and it Bo. was actually inspired by Bo's interview with you. Oh, really? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, because he had a lot of fun on your show, and then he was like, "We can do something like that. Like, we'll just have a conversation and put it online." <laughs> Is it just you two or so, do you guys go through guests and have like a triune of conversation? It's been just us two. Right. I think we would consider having guests. I think it's probably smart to have guests because then people who know your guest will at least listen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas now we're just getting the same people who know either me or him. So mm -hmm. it probably limits our reach at the moment. But Bro, what's it called? Cyphalopod. Which is like cephalopod, but with psychology and philosophy. Oh, okay, I was thinking cipher, olopod. Nobody seems to get it, so I thought it was pretty clever when I came up with it. I'm like, well, octopuses are awesome, so cephalopod's cool. And then I got the psychology bit, the philosophy bit, and then like nobody gets it. And Bo can't mm. even pronounce it. He's always like sci-fi-lopod. <laughs> That might that might be a barrier to your success, <laughs> but if you come up with cool T-shirts, it'll probably even out. We do have a cool logo. The logo oh, is like Nietzsche octopus in red and blue. So Nietzsche, he's like an octopus, and he's like red and blue. So that's supposed to be the political aspect. And then he's wearing like glasses, and like he has a big mustache. <laughs> Are so, you are you a big fan? If that's of not going to attract the people. I don't know what will. <laughs> I am. He's he's an attractor. He's a strange attractor. Yeah, that's classic. Yeah. Is that um, how you is that how you got into psych then? I honestly no. So how I got into psych was uh, when I was an undergrad. Emily Belchettis, who's a professor at NYU now. She came to my social psychology class and was like, I need someone to freak people out with tarantulas. And I was like, me. 
Um, so then I started working with her and I kind of wanted to be a philosophy major at that point. And my mom was like, absolutely not. Um, you can't get any job, but to be a professor. So it's a stupid field to go into. <laughs> and then I ended know. up yeah, doing the same thing. Um, but yeah, that's how I started getting into social psychology. And then I suppose like my philosopher side ended up kind of coming out in my research interests anyway, because mm -hmm. I ended up studying free will belief and I do a lot of experimental philosophy stuff. A lot of people like actually think I'm a philosopher and not a psychologist, um, which is both good and bad probably. I think some of the, when I was on the job market, people seem to be pretty concerned. They're like, oh, are you a philosopher? <laughs> <laughs> no. I like philosophy. Philosophy and psychology are intimately linked. They are. are or they can be. Yeah. Yeah. And Sometimes what's the not. crossover for you between those two things? Um, I think probably because I study a topic that mostly only philosophers care about, which is free will. Mm -hmm. Um, but I pretty much exclusively use psychology methods. So some philosophers use psychology methods and they're called experimental philosophers and apparently get, they get like a really bad rap among philosophers. They think they're not real philosophers. Um, and by experimental, you mean not like, you, you mean like actual data sets experimental. They conduct experiments. Yeah. yeah. They collect real data. So rather than, you know, thinking about ideas and reading about ideas and like coming up with theories by, you know, they say from the armchair, Mm -hmm. They actually try to um, measure what people think about things, mm -hmm. um, which apparently a lot of philosophers hate. <laughs> so it's an uphill battle for Is it? the experimental philosophy group, apparently. Yeah. What comes to mind, and this is pretty ungenerous, and this is totally ungenerous. The worst thing that I could say about that reaction is that the philosophers look at data and feel uh, inept. Or um, yeah. like that, that could actually destroy their theories that's, and their way of building theory. Yes, that's definitely part of it. So I think they're intimidated by statistics because they don't have training in statistics. And mm -hmm. so that kind of freaks them out. Um, and then, yes, there's always the risk that data could prove that whatever they've been saying for a long time uh, is wrong. So hmm. I think I went to a conference this experimental philosophy conference in Madrid recently and people it was experimental philosophers and they were doing just that they were presenting data um, on what people think for example what should different concepts mean like what does it mean to know something and the data show that people disagree with philosophers definitions of these concepts and philosophers want to be like no this is what it means and people <laughs> are just wrong but at some point, you probably have to be like, well, maybe we should consider the lay conception in our mm. definitions of different concepts. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of resistance for that reason. Can we, we trust? Can we trust uh, the ple the plebs and the way that the plebs go about life? <laughs> can we trust common sense? Um, yeah, no, I would say no. Okay. <laughs> so, I have a paper um, that was recently published, I think just a couple weeks ago, we were doing looking at this with free will. Um, 
So there have been debates about what do people mean when they use the term free will, and is that whatever they think free will is, is it compatible or incompatible with like a scientific sort of understanding of the universe? So mm. if everything has a cause yeah. and everyone's causal history leads back to before they're born, does that threaten free will and does it threaten moral responsibility? And people have been doing these experiments trying to test whether people believe free will is compatible or incompatible with a, let's say, a naturalistic or deterministic understanding of the universe and getting drastically different results. Mm. Um, so our paper argued that the reason you're getting these different results is because people will say free will exists when they want to hold people morally responsible. And it doesn't matter what kind of external constraints you throw at them. So mm. if you tell them that we live in a deterministic universe, but they really want to hold somebody morally responsible, they're going to say free will is compatible with that. Yeah. If you catch them in a more neutral state, then they'll say it's not. If you if it's hypothetical, what if this what if our universe it's not deterministic, but what if it was? Then people will be more comfortable with that and will say no, then we wouldn't have free will. But that's because they assume we don't live in that type mm -hmm. of universe. Um so basically when you ask people these questions, they're not going to respond based off of like deep like critical mm. thinking, like evaluating what are like what are the necessary features for moral responsibility? What what capacities do people need to have? Um, they respond basically according to what their current needs are. So if they are trying to mm -hmm. punish someone at them or hold them morally responsible, well, is it that's is what it, we are? Is it strictly uh, punitive? Isn't there a positive aspect of wanting to own one's own accomplishments or wanting the desire that the amount of time and resources I plunk into, let's say, education is mm -hmm. uh, will make me more free or make me more masterful or. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I have a, a couple things that are related to that. One is that we find a similar but smaller effect for like good actions. So people do seem to be like somewhat motivated to hold people morally responsible for good behavior, just nowhere near the extent they are for for bad actions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then we find, as you're saying, um, it applies to the self as well. Um, so mm -hmm. when people are trying to get off the hook for their own bad behavior, um, then they downplay their own free will. So, for example, we have a study where hmm. this is with um, a colleague, Andy Vonash. Uh, he he uh, or sorry, we had people write about like their past addictive behavior or like a time they gave into temptation. And then when it either had bad consequences or it had okay consequences. And we found people were like some writing about similar things. So say they went, they went gambling. And in one case they lost all their money and then couldn't feed their family. Or in another case they broke even and they were fine and it wasn't a big deal. When people are thinking about a time their behavior had bad consequences, they say they had less free will. Hmm. And they tend to think that their addictive behavior doubt like the, that, that they can't overcome their addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when they're not trying to essentially shirk responsibility for their bad behavior, they don't do so to the same extent. Hmm. So it, it seems like free will is more of an excuse than um, a, a positive theory of life or a useful theory of life. I guess so unless we my... zoom back out to how uh, society regulates harmonious behavior and free will comes in in order to justify uh, punitive uh, damages or whatever. Uh, 
then it's a it's a it's a good concept for a society to hold because it it structures society in a way that's more harmonious. But yeah, so I I don't know. Um, my former advisor Roy Baumeister has some studies I think where they find that free will is associated with accomplishing your goals, but presumably people are always trying to accomplish their goals. They're never trying to fail and they're never trying to like be bad. Hmm. So it's not clear whether hmm. that really is viewed as like a successful use of free will. Like I, okay. I, I worked hard or, um, uh, I overcame this temptation or something or if, or if they're motivated to take responsibility for their achievements. I don't, that I don't know. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is used in all kinds of ways. And yeah. I think people definitely want to take credit for their achievements. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because you can kind of see different things like people sometimes seem sort of compelled to say they have these sort of natural talents and natural abilities. Like you might downplay how hard you work. Like, for example, let's say you win a state track tournament. You hmm. you might want to say, well, I'm I didn't have to work that hard. Like I'm just naturally a really good runner. Because then it's almost like there's some essence about you that makes mm-hmm. you phenomenal, um, rather than that you had to work really hard. Hmm. But at the same time, I think people do want to think that their achievements are earned. Um, so you might have sort of competing competing motivations there to to hmm. feel like there's something about you that's special and not just your hard work, but then also you want to be perceived as hardworking. So, yeah. Interesting. Huh? I just, I wonder if there is a conception of the future that we can hold as time bound beings that doesn't incorporate some level of choice or freedom to choose because going through life, we learn, or at least I, I worked in preschool for several years. And what I ended up doing was, I guess, teaching kids to deal with time, which means consequences if you do this then that Mm -hmm. if you don't do this then this other thing so rather than an ex post facto uh, justification for either punishment or reward or standing um i I wonder if if free will is also operative and in understanding if i uh, uh, of dealing with possibility uh, of a Mm -hmm. possibility landscape and and conceptualizing oneself as as sustaining their um you know their ability to be themselves and to be operative in the world through the future Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's something that i think a lot of people get confused about because they seem to think that if like let's say we lived in a scientifically deterministic universe they seem to think that that would mean that no matter what you do, you'd have this outcome. But that's not what it means. It means that Mm. you're going to have this outcome because you're going to do this thing because that thing happened and every single step along the way has to occur Mm -hmm. for the inevitable outcome to occur. So it's even if people have no free will whatsoever and from the moment they were born, every action they were ever going to do was predetermined, even in that case, they still have to do everything they're going to do to get there. So if you're like people say, Hmm. well, you just like, why bother getting out of bed if you're going to be equally successful no matter what? No, the getting out of the bed has to happen for your success to happen. So you still need to make these choices and you still need to do uh, the, the positive thing that's going to lead to the other positive thing, regardless of whether you have free will. Right. Yeah. So, 
I think people have a hard time with that. And, uh, Hmm. And I think it's also just kind of confusing because it feels as though the the alternative option is real. Like you could do the other thing and in some sense you could, but Hmm. depending on your causal history, ultimately you're going to do one thing or the other. Hmm. This is a fascinating uh, topic. Why, Why do you think this is kind of a meta question? Why do you think people are so obsessed with the idea of free will and either proving it or disproving it? What's the, what's at stake here? Yeah. People are very obsessed with it. Um, which I don't think I realized when I started studying it, which has been both a blessing and a curse because people Mm. care a lot more about my, some of my work than I thought they would. Um, (laughs) to, to, (laughs) to your benefit and detriment. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, there's a, a, uh, I guess he's a former lab mate in some sense. My advisor, my postdoc advisor, White Baumeister, this was his grad student, Andrew Monroe. And he's writing like a critique of my motivated free will belief concept. And in the paper, he says, like, if these findings, my findings, if they are real, this would be a coup for scholars. And like, this would completely overthrow the whole legal system, like these oh, yeah. really like extreme claims about my research. And I'm like, this was published in 2014 and nothing has happened since then. Like literally nothing has happened that I know of. Um, (laughs) So I don't think I'm like, I I don't think my paper basically ends uh, criminal justice, but Hmm. um, what is motivated free will? uh, It's, it's the idea that free will beliefs are partially motivated by desires to punish people. So the idea that we basically have this concept so as to justifiably blame and punish other people. Um, But it it does show that people care a lot about it. And some people say that, I think there's a philosopher, Smilansky, I believe is his name. He, he argues that like, if we told everyday people that they don't have free will, like it would be horrible for society. Like, people would just start stealing stuff. Everyone would be super terrible. Like everyone would be uh, like unmotivated to work hard. Um, And they've tried to do some of these studies where they like try to minimize free will and then see if people are more immoral. But Hmm. um, there have been some studies on that that have found mixed effects. And at the moment, I don't have confidence that that's true, Um, that people actually become worse people when they don't believe in free will. because in my view, you don't need it at all, right? You can say we should still punish people because punishment deters bad behavior. Mm. Uh, we don't need people to be ultimately morally responsible to say, too bad, we have to put you in jail uh, because you killed someone. <laughs> we don't want you to do it again. Um, but, but So yeah, responsibility people... survives the loss of free will. Holding people well, responsible and, and holding oneself that's... responsible. So I have a complicated answer to that <laughs> um, because that's another debate uh, among philosophers. Like, can you preserve responsibility? And I would say you don't seem to preserve like the intuition about responsibility. Like people don't seem as responsible as we think they are. If if it's really true that every every behavior you ever make is basically predetermined before you're born that seems to mess with at least my intuitions of what I think responsibility should be. Hmm. But that doesn't mean we should get rid of it as a society. Hmm. doesn't mean we should stop punishing and praising people 
Um, and I would say almost we absolutely should keep punishing people um, because it works really, really well at mm-hmm. deterring selfish behavior. So it's not like a descriptive responsibility, like not that people are responsible, but that it's a prescriptive responsibility. We should hold people responsible. It's, and I would even go so far to say we should still morally judge people too, because that's also effective mm-hmm. at regulating behavior. People so, care a lot about their moral reputations. Yeah, it's it's like um, introducing parameters to an environment that shapes the organism. Um, exactly. And then when those environments are, are lifted or are not there, those, those conditions aren't there, then the, then the organism starts uh, shaping itself in, in a different direction. I've been working on this documentary about the Evergreen State College. I was a student there when, cool. when it blew up. So you, you know about it. Not cool that you were there necessarily, but cool that, you were, that you're doing a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things is that responsibility was shifted from the individual to the category, to that intersectional uh, category. So that the, uh, let's say the white male is responsible for all of the, the history of suffering of, of white Western colonialism, um, but he's mm-hmm. not responsible for electricity or the discovery of the mm-hmm. genome or anything positive. He's only responsible right. for, for all the negative aspects of that. Then somebody who is a person of color or a, not a colored person, but a person of color, uh, because we have to play mm-hmm. this dance in this way of thinking, um, they are then no longer responsible for any of their behavior because that mm-hmm. behavior, like their negative behavior, let's say their negative right. behavior, whether it is they are aggressive or they fail, it's all about mm-hmm. the institution. It's it's all about the uh, the, the system. So right. so responsibility and, and what I think that that provided the conditions for the Evergreen protest, which if we extrapolated what happened during those four days at Evergreen, well, let's say two weeks at Evergreen and we t- take that and put it on society, society basically would fail. And so, but the concepts that, that allowed that, I'm trying to argue the concepts that allowed the behavior of the administration, the faculty and the students during those, during those two weeks, um, that those are to blame. So in, in effect, those are responsible for creating the conditions where responsibility was lifted so that people could get away with different things. I'm not formulating a question. But um, but I guess within what you were saying about um, the concept is still uh, responsibility is still there, but free will isn't or, or this shifting of our, our conception of the the I guess the the battle or the balance between having agency or just being completely determined, purely determined. Yeah, I mean, so that seems to me like another case of just when it's convenient, you want to hold people responsible and when it's inconvenient, you don't. And it depends like which side you're on of different issues, right? Hmm. So I agree. I've seen something similar to what you're saying. Like people are, you see this with men a lot, like men get blamed for a lot of things. They don't get praised for a lot of the like institutions they've created over time that's not part of who they are but every man is part of like rape culture or something like that Hmm. um and it's really i mean this just kind of to me demonstrates all of the same thing it's people people really conveniently use 
the idea of responsibility when they're hoping to blame or punish or see someone punished Mm. uh, for their behavior. And there's not some kind of like coherent, consistent way that people think about it. It's really about convenience and what's promoting my current Mm. my current needs. That falls directly into another topic that you're studying bias. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when I spoke with Bo, we talked about his research into bias and and the bias of those who are studying bias and stuff like that. So a a general question about bias and studying bias and social psychology in in investigating bias, how does that um, help us to deal with bias, like recognize it in ourselves, recognize it in others, um, know when to use it, know when to not use it, Mm -hmm. know when we're applying it selectively or... Yes, yeah, sadly, I think we have we have learned quite a bit about bias, the fact that it seems most people are biased um, in various ways. We've identified lots of domains where people are likely to be biased. We haven't identified many good ways of getting rid of it. <laughs> um, there are there's this really funny effect that replicates for me every time, which I love. It's called the bias blind spot effect. So first you do this thing where you ask people, you can ask a a room of people, rate yourself relative to people in this room, rate yourself on how funny you are, how smart you are, how um, good looking you are from like one to seven and four is average. And then you ask them um, to raise their hands. Who said seven? Who said six? Who said five? And like on virtually all positive traits, nobody rates themselves below average. Nobody, which is obviously statistically impossible. And for negative things, nobody rates themselves above average. And I've done this with classrooms many, many, many times. So it doesn't matter the (laughs) sample size. I do it with 10 people. I do it with 100 people. No one ever says they're below average on anything positive. And then you say, then you tell them about the effect. You say, hey, there's this effect called the better than average effect. And people tend to rate themselves better than average on everything good and below average on everything bad. Is it possible that you might have slightly inflated your estimates and literally nobody says yes? Nobody. Really? So this is called this is called the bias blind spot effect. And this is that even when you tell people that they're probably biased, they still deny being biased. Hmm. Um And I think this has been replicated with children as well. People just tend to think that their own thinking isn't biased. They're pretty willing to accept that other people are, but not the self. Hmm. Um, And so I try to think that everybody is biased, including myself, and that's probably true. Um, But it's really hard to get people to to notice it in Mm. themselves. And Hmm. we know like conditions that can make people more biased. Um, For example, in ambiguous cases, people are more biased. So if something's really obvious, like if you gave a person a really good study that opposed their political views, they might have to accept it. And then that might get rid of their bias. Hmm. Um, So maybe like really good information um, would help get rid of it. But but no, and sadly, we know a lot about how people are biased, but not a whole lot about how to make people not be biased. Okay, so this is assuming that bias is bad. 
Right. It, it might not. It, in many cases, it's probably not. It, it, because in the paper that you're working on now that you shared with me, you, you kind of make at least an overture that, that biases. Which one did I send to you? Uh, you sent me a draft. Uh, I don't have my... Oh, uh, that one. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's a draft. Then, right? But you say that, mm-hmm. that um, at least evolutionarily speaking, you say that it would be very difficult uh, for a society to give rise to, uh, over an evolutionary period, give rise to non-group thinking or somebody who doesn't favor the in-group because the in-group is going to protect itself and so weed out that which is not in-group favoring and stuff so in a certain respect we need to have an in-group sort of you know behavior and mentality but then it seems like it needs to be concatenated like those those russian dolls though like i i'm really for my uh my middle school sports team Mm -hmm. but then at the high school level i'm for all the middle schools come together at the high school and we're all for them and then we do the regional and then we do like our state and then if there's like an olympic thing then we're for our country you know and i guess we would need an intergalactic enemy before we could unite uh, against something. It just seems that againstness yeah. is the best way to unify people. Um, yeah. Common, common a lot of enemy. People, yeah. Common a lot of hate. people have made that argument that really what it would take to bring like humankind together would be to have like aliens trying to kill all of us and then we would come together. Hmm. Uh, I think that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, um, but yeah, you're right. So like it, it doesn't even make sense if individuals didn't have in-group bias because, yeah, evolution would not have selected for that, right? We had to, we evolved in competing coalitions, and if members of the in-group didn't really care about each other more than they mm-hmm. cared about the other humans, then that group wouldn't have won the, whatever, the the wars or battles um, that were happening. So evolution mm-hmm. would favor people who care about their in-group, who will fight for their in-group, defend their in-group, and probably have more positive attitudes toward their in-group because other people in the group would like that person and that person would gain status within the group. Um, So absolutely, people should be biased toward their in-group in that sense. Um, You can argue about how, how necessary that is anymore. Yeah, Um, Could we identify as humans and care about humans of course there are competing interests you know this is an issue with like immigration like if you really identify with your country and you want your country to be doing really well um and you don't care about helping people who uh are like living in really terrible conditions in whatever country they're from um is it a good idea to let them in and kind of spread like spread the goodness around to more people and maybe mm-hmm. everyone's a tiny bit worse off, but more people are better yeah. on average. Um, of course you can't do those calculations. It's hard to know mm-hmm. how, uh, like a really, for example, a really, uh, a generous immigration policy, what that would do to a country. It's hard. It's hard to say mm-hmm. you can't like run an experiment. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it, it's not, it's not obvious to me whether in group, biases are great in modern society on average but they might they might be and they, they probably certainly are when it comes to like teams and yeah. like companies you probably want to if you're going to be a good um, employee probably good to 
uh, be biased in favor of your colleagues and maybe your boss. Um, so definitely good for your family. You should care more about your kids than someone else's kids. Yeah. Um, and we're it's, all kind of okay with that one. It seems that even if tomorrow we we were in a utopia, and this might be the anti-utopian argument in a nutshell, but if we arrived in utopia tomorrow, we would have all these vestigial, vestigial uh, psychological characteristics that are attenuated to a warrior society or, or a, a combative environment. So if our environment changed into happy land overnight, um, <laughs> it's not that we would be... Um, you know, like the the Matrix and that that cliche about like human humans would just get bored in paradise, which might be true, but it's because yeah. there are all these aspects of us that were crafted for a different environment. So we would have to still deal with those. And how do you get rid of those things? Even if they're bad in this modern environment, we're still going to be producing those things. And they're still going to be around for a very, very long time, longer than uh, all those other traits that we have, that weird ear thing here, or this thing or that. Yeah, some people make that argument with, um, with like microaggressions. It's that we've gotten so comfortable and society is so nice. And like, we have, we don't really have a whole lot of conflict in our lives. Like people really aren't killing each other anymore. And we are kind of like tuned to pick up uh, like infractions from other people. And if we can't find something big, we're going to start picking on something small because Mm -hmm. you, what you want to do is weed out the bad people in society. Right. So you have this mechanism for identifying bad people. And if you're Mm -hmm. not finding bad people, you're going to find kind of bad people maybe uh, and start, start being offended uh, um, by relatively minor. That's an argument. I think John Haidt makes this argument like for why you tend to find these concerns with microaggressions in some of the most comfortable environments in the world, like at elite universities where everyone there is so, 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 so privileged. And, and yet they seem to think they're suffering from these various types of microaggressions Mm. and they don't feel safe on their college campus, which obviously uh, you could relate to, I suppose. Um, But yeah. Um, um, yeah, that it's it's precisely because we're we're sort of wired for a worse environment that we think our really great environment is so awful. So do you think that we, we need to, like, formulate some sort of um, emotion sink, like like a teenager who has the choice to either uh, that was going to be crude? They have a choice. I guess they have they have a choice to like go out and like, uh, I guess, just be destructive to, you know, their environment or they can go out and play sports. But they have all this energy. They have to sink it into something. And it's competitive by design. It's competitive by its very nature. So I wonder in, in, a, in a way of critiquing Twitter, Twitter's just a way where we dump all of our aggression so we don't have to be <laughs> nasty to everybody else in our life, you know? So it's a cesspool yeah. because we're all like, you know, using it as like the, the leeches to take out the bad blood of us, you know? Mm-hmm. And is I there like a way that. to like so Twitter could them... almost be a service then, right? Because I think a lot of people have this view of sports and they're like, you know, thank goodness we have sports because you have these men who mm-hmm. want to be in groups and they want to fight with each other and they want to win. And like this kind of gives them that. And it's the same thing with video games. Like it kind of gives them this thing that they really want. 
maybe Twitter is the same. Like we need, we need to be assholes to other people. <laughs> and, and that let's do it to strangers and like, let's do it, you know, online where it's, sometimes Twitter really ruins people's lives, but like mm. for the most part, it doesn't ruin people. Like if you get into a little argument on Twitter, they'll just block you and then who cares? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually interesting because people kind of seem to think Twitter is terrible because it brings out the worst in people, but maybe it's just taking the worst and like having somewhere for the worst <laughs> to sit <laughs> so we can be better <laughs> in our regular lives. I don't know. I like that. That might be true. <laughs> are, are you um how long have you been in academia then you've been there your whole life then i guess did you oh, take a break and yeah. like go on an adventure between uh your various schoolings <laughs> no even worse i i finished my undergrad in three years and then oh. i went straight into grad school and then postdoc and then assistant professor so i've been since i was i suppose 19 on this trajectory oh wow right there <laughs> um but I've had a lot of terrible jobs, you know, when I was younger. I peeled carrots for a while, so I feel like I have... Wait, what does that mean, you peeled world. carrots? Were you, like, in the scully on some, like, pirate ship or something? <laughs> no, that would have been way cooler than my actual <laughs> carrot peeling story. No, I worked at the dining hall at my undergrad and, like, in the veggie prep. We prepared the vegetables <laughs> for the dining hall, and I, like, literally go into work. And peel carrots for four straight hours. Wow, weird. For so, what? I don't know if that's the, real world like experience. Diced but... vegetables or something? <laughs> Why were people consuming so many carrots? <laughs> well, it's for the, all of the dining halls in the whole university. Oh, okay. Um, so probably some of them got cooked. Some of them probably were for the salad bar. Some okay. were probably for... There's a lot I of uses know. to carrots. They're just like coming uh, in line. I, right I don't know what else they were doing with all of those carrots. But we did peel a lot of carrots and potatoes. Are you um, are you optimistic about um, the Academy then? I mean, you've devoted yourself oh, to it. Oh, <laughs> God. Um, I don't know. That's hmm. a good question. Um. I, I am a fan of a lot of the corrective measures that have been put into place recently to deal with the replication crisis. Okay. Um, I think that will be helpful. And I'm actually, I'm actually possibly starting a journal where we're going to do registered, uh, pre-registered papers only. And I think that might be the way things will move in the future. Like either you have to have a study and then replicate it or you oh. have to pre-register things and that'll help. What that won't help with um, is the political component, mm -hmm. um, which some people don't think is that big of a problem. I personally think it's probably a pretty big problem. Which political um, component? Are you talking about the bias or the distribution? The fact of that everybody and... is very liberal. Yeah. Um, and there was a paper that came out recently. It's a preprint. It's not published yet. That found that papers that were viewed as more liberal versus more conservative, um, that they were equally likely to replicate. Um, but I have uh, some, I, I don't know if they measured whether a paper is like liberal friendly or conservative friendly the proper way. So rather than basically asking liberals or conservatives how much they like the findings, they had people estimate how much they think liberals or conservatives would like the findings. And mm. I think, People don't know what a 
what a real, like a pro-liberal finding is. So you can look at these studies, for example, studies that show uh, like sex discrimination. So um, do employers uh, discriminate against men and women in hiring? And you can look at like citations, how much do papers get cited uh, if they show that there is uh, people are sexist against women versus there is no difference or in fact they're more they discriminate against men hmm. and the papers that show that people are uh, sexist against women get cited more often um, mm -hmm. even if they're lower quality papers or they have the smaller sample size mm -hmm. and I don't think a liberal would say that's my preferred conclusion they wouldn't say I want people to be sexist against females yeah um, but they do seem to display a preference for that conclusion. So it's kind of ironic that really the whole reason they have that bias is because they care so much about sexism against women and they care so much about women being treated equally. But as a result of that, they display this preference for those results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, because um, it justifies uh, it justifies their belief or it justifies their action or the what do you way. Mean? Are they more prone to, let's say, cite and reference studies that show that women are being biased against because that justifies their belief that women are more biased by society at large, or it justifies their action in correcting yeah. or even overcorrecting for that in society? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't know. My feeling is that it's about the correction my feeling is that they want to put in uh, measures to eliminate this bias. And if you make it look like it's not there, then we won't try as hard. So you get this a lot with the, yeah. um, with the wage gap. Um, liberals seem to want the wage gap to be quite large. Conservatives seem to want it to be quite small. Hmm. And um, I suspect the fear for liberals there is that if we say – no, if you factor in women's choices um, and, you know, the the routes they take at work, whether they choose to take overtime, how much they'd rather spend time with their family, take all of those things into consideration, then there's not much of a gap left. Then people would think we no longer work really hard to get women in STEM, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of this fear of the consequences of the reality and mm -hmm. It's possible liberals wouldn't be satisfied until men and women were equally represented, even if that wasn't what women wanted. Hmm. Um, same thing for like the like take. Well, the Oscars is kind of tough because I actually don't know. They still break things down by. Do they I do like a female still... director and a male director? No, director, or just actress men? and actor. Yeah, so I suspect. Lead. I suspect that they would want equal numbers of male and female best directors or nominees, um, even if women didn't really want to be directors. Maybe women want to be actresses. Like, I don't know. I'm making mm -hmm. stuff up here. But yeah, yeah. but it's possible that um, – anyway, my, my feeling is that people are concerned that we wouldn't take these measures to create equality among men and women if it mm -hmm. turned out that the cause wasn't sexism. Mm -hmm. um, but it could be both. You make a good point. It could be – that they're just trying to, they just want to be right about the problem mm -hmm. in the first place. Is your field uh, 
what what's your field your distribution by by sex in in your field um so you mean in social psychology social psych yeah yeah social psychology i suspect if you look at people over age 40 mm. it's going to be definitely more male uh if you look at full professors it'll be more male maybe even if you look at assistant professors it will be more male i'm not positive but grad students it's way more females okay um um, Has that always but, been the case? I mean, do you have data on this? I guess, like, if women are more interested in it, but then they they find something else to do after uh, graduate post postdoc stuff. Well, one thing is that to a lot of the time to be uh, to get a professor job, you have to move. Yeah. Um, and women might be less willing to do that. And they might rather stay wherever they are, especially if they are married and have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly I, i'd have to look at for example recent hires i don't know what the actual distribution is i think i saw something within the past couple of years that said even among assistant professors it was still male but that could be wrong because or that might change because certainly i think people getting phds in social psychology must be more female by now and it differs by subfield so like hmm. if you go to like relationships research in social psychology, it's more female, way more females. If you do like morality, which is more philosophy, kind of, you get more males. Um, hmm. So I, I suppose if you went to like a big conference and they have all these pre-conferences, the different areas, some rooms would yeah, be like yeah, almost okay. all females and some would be almost all males. But um, we have a good blend. A good yeah. Which domain balance, are you in? You're the moral um, room. I tend to do morality and politics, which tend to be more male. Um, And I think probably because the the philosophy component for morality, politics might be slightly more gender balanced, but I still Hmm. think it's probably more male. Not sure why. Are you hopeful about... (laughs) Are there tools that you guys are developing and, and... Political, um, social psychology, and tarantula research um, that could possibly <laughs> help um, with the American politics, if American politics can be helped. That, that's a big <laughs> assumption. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it can be. There is, um, there's a he's an assistant professor at University of Chicago, I believe, Matt Motil created this uh, it's called open mind I believe it's a website and an app and he's testing it with like tens of thousands of people I believe right now Um, and it's supposed to increase intellectual humility Hmm. which is possibly the personality trait that makes people more open to changing their mind um, makes them more uh, they want to know the truth more than be right potentially um and hmm. it i think some research shows also people would be less likely to attack the moral character of people they disagree with if i'm if oh, i'm thinking of the paper correctly hmm. um so it's a intellectual humility as a personality trait seems really important for having good conversations with people you disagree with um and the open mind platform is supposed to help with that. I don't know how successful it's been so far, but he yeah. sounds fairly optimistic. So it's probably worth checking out. Um, 
you probably don't need it, but <laughs> uh, some people, uh, some people could benefit. Well, um, are there, you say it's a personality trait, but there's that, I don't know too much about this, but I've, I've watched my share of Jordan Peterson lectures and, <laughs> um, tirades, uh, and he talks about the big five personality traits and they, they seem to be kind of emergent properties of an individual, but there are certain, do you agree or disagree that there are certain, uh, traits that aren't emergent, that they're something that are acquired or honed or, or fostered in people. Um, yeah. Like can you that's... become more open? Can you become more conscientious? We would all like to think that you can become um, <laughs> more whatever you want to be. Uh, it, the, so social psychology, like the whole point of the field, is to kind of show these little situational variables that can change things, hopefully important things. Um, hmm. And a lot of it doesn't replicate, and a lot of it really, uh, shows really small effects. And personally... I am less optimistic about situational influences than I've been in the past. Uh, and that seems to increase more and more for me <laughs> by like the day, mm. um, hmm. which is a bummer because my whole uh, field is trying to look at these things. Um, that's not to say there aren't certain things that do matter a lot. Personality, I doubt there are really interventions that can make you more extroverted long term okay yeah um but can you be actually being open-minded here's one that i think would work so Hmm. i don't know of like so maybe this open mind app will be really successful i don't know um so that might work but one that i think probably would work is if you kind of create your identity around being an open person Um, and you kind of advertise that about yourself because then you're forced to be open-minded because otherwise people will call you a hypocrite and people don't like being hypocrites and, Mm. uh, they don't like being called hypocrites. So if you create a situation in your life where you've identified as an open-minded person and you publicly identify that way, Mm. you'll sort of be forced to be that way because you'll be policed by other people if you don't, um, So that's kind of creating a constraint uh, on yourself to to be um, more open-minded, to be more humble, too. Yeah. I think if you say, it's really good to say, to admit you don't know. I love when people change their minds. And then you never say you don't know and you never change your mind. People will call you out on that. Yeah. And then you'll be forced to say you don't know and to change your mind. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I found to be pretty helpful is this is sort of oddly in a, in a paper from like 1979, the most famous paper on political bias, probably, which is Lord Ross and Lepper. They have this bit about how we can't really blame people for being biased because it makes sense that they would evaluate information that can, that fits their worldview as higher quality information. But what is, what is peculiar is how certain people are of their political attitudes in the first place. And I think this is a really good point because most political issues are really ambiguous and difficult and involve trade-offs and unknowns. We don't know what will happen with like a really uh, lenient 
immigration policy. We don't know what's going to, we know that climate change is happening. We don't know what's going to happen with it. We don't know how big of a problem it's going to be. All of these kinds of things. Like there are so many unknowns Hmm. that these should be people's most flexible beliefs. Like these should be the things that people are most willing to accept new information about. And yet, they're the ones that are the most rigid and that's just peculiar because um, you could easily predict the exact opposite. And what it tells you is that probably there really is this important group element because otherwise people should be pretty uncertain and should be pretty willing to, to listen to new evidence. And they're not. You bring Um, this up in your paper about the more ambiguous a thing is it actually gives more room for certainty. uh, Oddly enough. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. So ambiguity tends to increase people's biases because they can be more biased because it's oh, ambiguous. It's, they can get oh, away with it. To. Huh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> so the opposite yeah. is the case. Like, whereas you'd think that when you're in, encroaching upon ambiguous territory, you would tread lighter and, mm-hmm. and make sure to bring out your rapier instead of your big stick. But people are like, oh, I can smash things now. So everybody becomes the Hulk. You well, they know? don't think that consciously. <laughs> okay, nobody knows huh. Nobody knows they're doing that. But huh. yes, ambiguity tends to increase bias. And politics are usually ambiguous. Or um, too complex for, yeah. Yeah, very complex. Um, hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's puzzling to me, but... Um, hmm. I've, I've since then, like, I don't even know what I think about issues anymore. I don't know exactly (laughs) what's changed, but I went from like having pretty strong opinions on things to like, no longer. I'm just like, I don't know. I'm staying out of it. Um, but I don't know what happened. Uh, you, you lost your faith in faith then in a way. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Have you had to replace that with something else or, or are you just, are you, have you found, um, the ability to be comfortable and not knowing. Uh, I don't know if it's comfortable. The mm. reason it's not comfortable is because nobody likes you if you're not on their team, right? Hmm. And so if you're not on any team, then nobody likes you. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not that people don't like me as a person, but like, I'm not like liberals aren't going to love me. Yeah, you don't get rewarded. Because yeah. Because I'm not going to like if hmm. if they say something that I think well maybe you should be a little cautious about that like have hmm. you thought about this they're not going to like that and conservatives are not going to like me I was never really a conservative um, so you kind of hmm. you're not going to like fit in anywhere um, so I guess you have to be okay with that um, like you can post if you post a tweet that's going to be like designed to like trigger liberals like they're gonna love this thing like this is right up their alley you know you might get like liked and retweeted a ton and you're gonna feel really popular and cool like that's just not gonna happen for the most part (laughs) if you're sort of playing it safe yeah yeah you're like being you know you're being really cautious and you know you're appreciating Mm. both sides like people generally there's not a big uh there's not a big cheerleading squad for that group um there is a uh, cheerleading squad for misfits, but it's composed of misfits. So they're not really good at like <laughs> cheering all together at the same time. So you don't get like that super loud <laughs> echo chamber. You just get this wind tunnel with all these things going on. <laughs> <by>. <laughs> 
they, uh, yeah, and I think they're actually recently there. There are people who, um, who have gotten sort of famous for being like kind of open and maybe not clearly fitting into particular categories. Like I think maybe Sam Harris mm. kind of was like that, and then now you've got Quillette, um, mm. who claims to, I suppose, be for people who really just want to know what's true. The issue is that they end up forming their own groups. Yeah. And then you end up getting the same kinds of problems. So mm-hmm. you almost have to like resist <laughs> becoming part of a group um, uh, or at least not be too swayed by the praise that you would receive from that group, which I think is probably impossible for people. You know, if they tweet something and they get like 10,000 likes and the most they've ever gotten before is like 27, yeah. then they're going to try to tweet more stuff like that Yeah, uh, and be more like that person. So, um, not, not necessarily consciously, but they're going to, they're going to notice the pattern. Yeah. Um, well, the pattern's going to select for people who can game the pattern. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. And, and what, what's interesting then is that you, you almost don't choose your group. Your group chooses you because it praises you for something. And then you mm-hmm. realize that that's what you're going to be praised for. And yeah. then you're going to be more like that. And then you're going to become more like them and hmm. uh, then you're going to fit in. Um, hmm. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it because people really like praise and attention. And... Yeah. There might be uh, there might be like this weird kind of group or style of living in the intellectual landscape of kind of being a uh, like a traveling salesman, you know, uh, like okay, I'm going to go into this group. I'm going to circular mm-hmm. circulate around, figure out what's there. Maybe I'll do a couple hit songs and then I'm going to go to this next thing and see what's yeah. happening over here and see what's happening over here. Um, you bring this up. This might be a little too self-reflexive, but I've been I, I cleaning up my hard drive um, for technical reasons. And I was going through my old stuff and I did um, last year, I did a whole swath of, I'm just going to read an article and I'm going to make fun of it or, you know, like <laughs> deconstruct some sort of weird academic, um, you know, like one, one of the things that I get a lot of flack from hyper progressives is I, there's this paper that actually argued for feminism to act more like a virus. And so mm-hmm. my whole thing was like, is feminism literally trying to become cancer? So they, they bring that up when they're trying to smear me. Like, look at this guy. He's like Milo. I'm like, no, this is what the paper actually said. You couldn't said. have predicted that happening <laughs> with that. Well, okay, well, whatever. But um, but I, I did this thing and and I was going through and I was looking. I'm like, oh, that was that's really fun or funny and stuff. But like I got really tired of being that person and I've I've kind of distanced myself from that. But then I'm like, oh, I, I understand. And then people, some some people have said, you know, get back into that. Go back into that. My audience is like, we came to you because you did this stuff. Why aren't you doing this stuff anymore? Mm-hmm. I'm like, maybe I can do that too, but I don't want to just be that thing. You know, I don't want to be that thing, yeah. even though I get rewarded for that thing. And for more than just being rewarded, I can make a living doing that thing. So, like, there's, like, yeah. actual real incentive to do a certain thing. So it's, it's a weird, um, kind of, there has to be a back and forth, I guess. You can't not serve the crowd. You can't not have a home. You can't not have a family, but you can be the one in the family that kind of stands out or stands back or knows when 
to question the family, knows when to pull against the family or push against the family and stuff like that. Like with the whole IDW thing, like and how it, it sprang up, it was named. And then as soon as it was named, it got a lot of detractors and people that came to yep. it. And then you're wondering, well, those people in there, do they select for that? And do do they let other people in? And do I want to be associated with that? Because it's it's a boys right. club or whatever. It's kind of a club, you know. So it, but but as soon as it was named, it gained a lot of power, um, yep. but it, it lost something. Um, and what you can assume is that everyone in that group is now going to identify really strongly with that group, yeah, and and avoid criticizing gonna, each other in the group, stand up for yep, each other. Exactly, exactly. So hmm. they're going to start exactly. They're going to start having their own ideology that will have its own biases. Um, and so that's like the real danger is like, hmm. it, it's not a danger per se, but yeah. it's really hard to try to just want to approach the truth, whatever it may be, because sometimes it's going to be with this group, sometimes it's going to be with a different group, hmm. and they might hate you for uh, disagreeing okay. with them. Um, but so, you, so you're yeah. saying like basically set your sets, set your sights higher, like understand that you do need love and attention, but. There's something more that you want than just to be accepted. I think, yeah, I think you do have to do that. Um, the thing is nobody, I don't, most people don't realize that's why they're doing what they're doing. They don't realize that they're tweeting what they're tweeting because they, well, some people do. Some people are pretty self-aware of it, but a lot of people probably don't realize that they have their opinions because they get positive attention for their opinions. Um, hmm. And so even if you give people the, this advice, no one's going to be like, well, that applies to me because nobody thinks it applies to them, right? Everyone mm -hmm. thinks that they're just, they just have their, whatever their authentic beliefs are and mm -hmm. they've been exposed to the information they want to believe. So they have a lot of reason to believe the beliefs that they have. Um, so I think it really takes a lot to kind of challenge yourself and really try to, um, really try to put yourself like your beliefs to the test and you want to try to like disprove yourself. And then one, one piece of advice that Bo often gives is like, try to find really smart people uh, that you respect who disagree with you on a particular issue and listen to them. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really hard to do. And I think I, I, I honestly don't know if there's one good way to do it. I honestly don't know what it is. Because um, it requires people to be really self-reflective in a way mm -hmm. that I think most people probably aren't or don't don't want to be. Maybe it's interesting when you were talking about that one, the bias blind spot. I had this uh, mm -hmm. this kind of visualization that that it's easier, it's easiest for us to judge that which is most different for us. So within. Mm -hmm scientific disciplines it's going to be the easiest thing for us to really get a grip on well i guess this isn't true but the the material landscape is probably the easiest thing that we can measure um consistently and agree on consistently and as the as what we're studying gets closer and closer to us it gets more and more difficult for us mm -hmm. to have a, a, a even together um, to have like a clear sight. So social psychology is pretty much fucked because it's a bunch of people trying to study what a bunch of people do, you know, basically. And, and so it's one thing for like a thought leader or somebody on Twitter to like be aware of 
biases, but when something is claiming, a group is claiming to pursue the truth, and it's established within the pursuit of truth that they can't actually see the truth for whatever reason, then then that mm-hmm. which you are studying seems to be one of the most important things to study, is that why yeah. why can we not see the truth when it comes to ourselves? Yeah, so there's... Um... I don't know if this research has has replicated outside of this one particular scholar. So Dan Cahan is actually a law professor at Yale, I think. And he has at least a couple papers, maybe two or three, showing that um, experts and the most knowledgeable people are actually more biased than less knowledgeable people. The argument there is Hmm. that when you have a lot of information, it's really easy for you to argue with other people. Um, especially people who are less knowledgeable than you are. So you're going to win a lot of arguments. You're going to find a lot of really compelling reasons why you're right. And you're not going to feel the need to change your beliefs because people aren't going to be able to challenge you. So a person who wins a debate isn't necessarily going to be the person who's right. It's going to be the person who argues the best. Mm -hmm. And if you have a lot of information, if you're an expert, you're going to be pretty good at arguing and that mm-hmm. will persuade you that you're right. And you persu- um, you're so good be- at persuading everybody else. So you might as well persuade yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. So you can affa- uh, persuade other people more effectively if you persuade yourself as well. Right. So that's a lot of the time. This is what happens is people actually believe that they're right, but then they're also really convincing to other people, which makes them even more convinced that they're right. They win a lot of arguments, which makes mm. them more convinced that they're right. Um, so it, hmm. it's though again I I don't know how extensively this is replicated but I think it's possibly true that it, one reason it might be difficult um, to to see sort of maybe flaws in reasoning when it comes to topics we care about and we know a lot about is because we're just really good at arguing about them um, and are more confident that we're right. Mm-hmm. It seems that. To go back to Nietzsche, to go way back to your (laughs) octopus graphic or your coffee cup. Um, He talks a lot about how, like, he's ahead of his time or he's untimely, you know, and he's got a lot of problems with people that is (laughs) surrounding him. He could probably probably make some sort of psychological case of him just being an asshole or or just having problems, (laughs) uh, mental problems that, uh, yeah, narcissism, uh, you know, ecce homo. um, (laughs) But but the thing is, is that one of the things that that repulsed me when when I was like 19 or 20, it really repulsed me how egotistical he was. But it really mm-hmm. persuaded me, you know, like it really like because I, I, it, I re- it reflected my own egotism. Um, <laughs> but one thing that thinking about like him being ahead of his time is that I want to be ahead of my time, too. I'd rather be lonely now but right when I'm gone. And that is might that right? be a way of thinking of truth is something that's going to maintain its veracity uh, longer than you will. Are you saying that's how you personally feel? You'd rather be right and unliked now than, and or sorry, wrong and unliked now and then be right when you're dead? Well, <laughs> you're popular, not... Maybe. Well, I mean, that, like, not... 
not anymore because I'm on YouTube and everybody's here now. So it's, I'm living in a living environment, but before I did YouTube, I was living in a dead environment called, uh, fiction. Um, and, and so the way that I dealt with the loneliness of, of writing and fiction was to, to project my company beyond me. Mm. It's not here. So I'd rather be lonely now, but loved in the future, even if I'm going to be gone in the future. You know, so that was that was the way that I suspended my ego. And it took me a long time to suspend my ego until I could finally let it go and just do the work that I needed to do. But um, but I wonder, like, if that can be uh, replicated in, in a scientific pursuit rather than an artistic pursuit. That's really interesting, because this is something that I've thought about a lot recently is like, what would most people choose? Like, hmm. I don't think people could give you an honest answer, but. What would they really choose? Would they rather be wrong? Let's say 99% of people are wrong about something uh, and 1% are right. And the 99% are pretty vicious to the 1% that are right. Mm-hmm. Would you rather be right or wrong and well-liked or right and hated? And maybe you'll be liked when you're dead or something. Mm-hmm. But what would people actually choose? And I think think people would probably choose to be wrong and well liked and I wouldn't blame them I might I I honestly don't know what I would choose I'd like to think that I would choose to be right but I probably wouldn't um um and yeah that makes a lot of sense because it really like one of the most important things in a person's life is like getting along with other people and making connections and um so you can't really blame people for not wanting to express unpopular opinions yeah. or for at least being silent if they do have an unpopular opinion, which is how a lot of uh, mm. progress can take a long time because maybe more people believe something than we think believe that thing yeah. um, and no one's saying it out loud. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I suspect it's cool if you were managed to get yourself in that, that <laughs> place because I'm suspecting most people wouldn't choose that. Uh, and I think it would be helpful if people did. So, yeah, maybe if you could tell people you might be unpopular now, but when you're <laughs> right in the future, people be like, oh, that guy was so smart way back then. <laughs> well, this is <laughs> and you that's, have to that, care about yourself. That's the solution um, that I've found. Um, well, this is the solution yeah. that I found. It doesn't matter if I'm liked or not so much as that I like the people who I like. And I'd rather like the person who's unliked but right. And those are the people who I am more attracted to, the people who are standing mm-hmm. out. Uh, and and I've also seen firsthand what happens when those people who are right but don't say anything uh, get taken over by the people who are wrong and who are vicious to everybody else. Mm-hmm. So it, it So the answer... The, the solution isn't so much about me. It's so much about me rewarding those who are right mm-hmm. but unliked. Yep. Because then they like me. So I get I get the I get the to be beloved by the people who are my heroes, right? So right. It, and then and then I display this behavior that then incentivizes people to be right rather exactly. than liked. Because then they're gonna be yeah. liked to be right. So so again, like great. it's an envi- environmental solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to think about it as an economy. And if you want people to be intellectually humble, then you reward those people and you like them and you comment on their things or whatever, give them attention. Yeah. 
Uh, and then that incentivizes that behavior. And then it should make that person more likely to behave that way. And it should make mm. other people be more likely to behave that way. So you really have like some degree of control mm. over. You're not saying free will, but other people's behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the opposite of free will, I guess. You're controlling other people huh. by incentivizing their behavior um, to be humble, uh, let's say. Um, so to your example about like Nietzsche being maybe like a narcissist, like he, he did come across as very like compelling his art. I mean, he, he did have a lot of really good insights, but a lot of the time people give more attention to the person who like is the most confident, shouts the loudest. If you give attention to like the people who are being really cautious and who maybe aren't making grand claims yeah. and like are just being careful thinkers and you reward those people, then you'll get more of those people. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to both try to be intellectually humble yourself, but then you also have to participate in the economy where you're rewarding people who are yeah. that way. Yeah. It's like being a promoter. Uh, so if I go around self-promoting, then I, I might get rewarded more. But like, I think like the net benefit is that I'll be seen as somebody's full of themselves, and I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. But if I hire a promoter, or if I find people who want to promote <laughs> me, then they can boost my ego all they want and go and sell me to the world, uh, and then I don't have to be full of myself because they're full of me instead you know so if i go <laughs> and think about doing that it's to other people stretch. and and I, I make that in in the sense of the problem with caution uh, or cautious thinking is that it's not sexy and and it's mm -hmm. not a grand claim and you need somebody to make a glossy cover of that you need somebody to to mm -hmm. take that idea or take the person because you don't want just a bunch of stuffy people being cautious all the time that's going to be pulled over <laughs> You need somebody like rambunctious. You need somebody like like Lee Jessam, uh, psych mm -hmm. rabble, who yeah. who's a rabble rouser. You know, he 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 gets yeah. in there with the fisticuffs, though he cares about truth. But he's still he's a, a blustery yeah. guy about the truth. Mm -hmm. So he's really passionate about something that that requires caution and 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 nuance. You know. Yeah, he's a great example because I suspect he's one of these people that is certainly a lot of people like him, and yeah, like I think. He has a lot of people are fans of his, but probably a lot of like liberal social psychologists are like uh, a little bit annoyed by him, like calling people out all the time and making like calling all these effects out that we hold dear to our hearts, like yeah. stereotype threat. It has to be. Um, so he <laughs> he's a he's a he's a good example of someone who actually probably has gotten attention from being this way and maybe lost. Um, lost a tribe, but maybe also gained mm. another one, and and also has committed his reputation to being somebody who cares about the truth. Yeah. Um, I think he probably does it just for his own sake, but also people <laughs> reward him for it, so that probably helps. All right, Corey, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. This was fun for joining. I me. actually didn't know when we were recording, so we were recording that whole time. <laughs> oh yeah, I I just. I hit play uh, when the, the stuff that goes up, I usually cut off. I cut in at an interesting point and then I cut off at an interesting point. Oh, I don't okay. really do the, I do the introductions offline and I usually like the, the like surprise end where somebody tells a joke or we're just like kind of in the mm -hmm. middle of a human moment, you know, the whole like okay. goodbye, goodbye thing is so awkward. Yeah. Agreed. So, cool. Unless you don't want any of that recorded. 
no no it's all fine i was just like as we're going i was like i realized like 10 minutes and i was like he's probably recording already and then i thought about asking and i was like no just pretend he is (laughs) just be cool just be cool (laughs) yeah just be cool (laughs) yeah no it was really fun i'm glad you asked me to do it are you keen on teaching or research like which which is more so I'm being honest, like I got into academia for the research, yeah. but I enjoy teaching sometimes. Um, like when you have a really good group of students who care and you like have really good conversations with them, which I have had here because there are small classes, like oh, 10 cool. people. Okay, yeah. So they're almost like grad classes and that's really fun. Yeah. Um, when you're in like a big lecture hall, it's harder because you just can't connect with them. And so you're yeah. just like lecturing yeah, um, got to be the rock star so in those situations. Try, yeah, yeah, you have to figure out ways to make it interesting. But um, teaching can be cool. But it wasn't my my main motivation. If I wanted to just be a teacher, I would have just been a teacher. You want to generate <laughs> infinite citations? Yes, actually, my goal is to is to um, collaborate with like the most people that anyone's ever collaborated. Oh, really? With. That's my, huh. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, a, I'm losing. I'm like losing a really slutty badly. social psychologist. Yes, I want to be the sluttiest psychology collaborator ever. <laughs> so I have a lot of work to do. But... You're gonna kill me if I put that in, but that's the perfect place to end. That <laughs> I'm a slutty social psychologist. I'm okay with it. It's fine. <laughs> For all I know, I had that reputation anyway, and now if someone says it, I'll be like, oh, yeah, because of that collaboration thing, right? 